For decades, D.A. Carson has stood as a pillar of evangelical scholarship. A renowned Bible scholar and commentator who's written more books on the Bible and theology than most of us will ever read, Carson worked for decades as professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and currently serves as the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. But despite his work in the academy, Carson has never lost his love for God's people and has devoted much time and thought to strengthening the church in our day through ministries like the Gospel Coalition, which he co-founded with Tim Keller. In my interview today, I sit down with Don to talk about his life and ministry, how God led him to the academy, the original vision behind TGC, and what it looks like to pursue simple faithfulness before God at this stage in his life. Don is the author or editor of nearly 200 books, including Letters Along the Way, From a Senior Saint to a Junior Saint, which he co-wrote with John Woodbridge. Let's get started. Well, Don, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. My privilege. So today I'm eager to ask a variety of questions about your life and your ministry uh, as someone who is well known in our circles, the kind of reformed evangelical circles that we operate in. Uh, maybe just to start us off, uh, when and where were you born? I was born in the city of Montreal in 1946. Mm. And what was your home life like? What did your parents do? And do you remember those growing up years, kind of what things were like? We moved from Montreal when I was at the ripe old age of 18 months. We moved to a small city called Drummondville, of about, at the then it was about 40,000 people, on the edge of what's called the Eastern Townships, Les Cantons de l'Est. Um, Drummondville had maybe 3% English speakers, the rest were French speakers. So did you, sp- you speak French primarily in, home, in the home? So I was going to say, my parents were church planters. Both of them were brought up in English, one in England, in, in London, and the other mm. in Belfast, and then English parts of Ottawa and Toronto. So, so their background was all English. Dad yeah. had some French at school, but eventually became good enough in French to be a translator part-time for the federal government. Oh, wow. He had planted a church, in a French church in Montreal, before moving to Drummondville, and the church that he worked at in Drummondville was a bilingual church. There were English services, there were French services, and once in a while they put them together. Mm. And uh, I stayed in that city until I went to university. And then I went to McGill, which was mostly an English language university in Montreal. Today, about 40% of its courses are taught in French. And even when I was there, I took the odd course in French. Mm. But it was mostly an English university. So are you fluent in French today? Yes, um, fluent. I'm, I, I've had more education in English than in French. And I use my English more than my French. But if I go back to Montreal or go to Paris or... Switzerland somewhere, give me three or four days on the ground, and I'm dreaming in French, counting in French, <laughs> thinking in French, and so on. It all comes back. It all comes back. Uh, so was your father bivocational as he was a pastor, but also doing other things? Initially, he wasn't. But when he felt it was time to leave Drummondville, several English-language churches offered him a post, and he wouldn't take it because he felt called to French Canada. Hmm. And there wasn't another French one that was opening up they were all small. So he went to the federal government and started doing bilingual translation, always uh, French-English. So he had a full-time job as a translator then for another, I can't remember, 15 years mm. until he retired, and, uh, and then did the missionary work on the side. Okay, wow. So as a kid, what were some of your favorite subjects in school? 
I was the kind of kid who liked all things academic. It wasn't that I was better at history and literature and hated mathematics or the reverse. Basically, I liked it all. So you mentioned that you went to McGill University and I believe you were on your way to study chemistry and science. But then at some point, God kind of changed your mind and, and changed your path. I wonder if you could explain how that happened. Well, the long story is too long to retain here. But um, I worked part-time for the federal government in a lab mm. in Ottawa in the summer months. And um, I was enjoying what I was doing. But I noticed that in that lab, the lab workers basically fell into two groups. One group was a little older and a little more cynical. And they, had, they were looking forward to retirement. Mm. And what they longed for was no more work. Some of the younger ones were bright, hardworking, industrious, imaginative, and were actually hoping that they'd uh, find something that would earn them a Nobel or something equivalent. Mm. And I wasn't in either camp. I was enjoying what I was doing. But at the same time, I was working with a pastor up the Ottawa Valley who was trying to plant a church. And um, he was single, older than I was, but I tried working with him a little bit. And what was capturing my interest was what was going on the weekend on that church plant. So that was the first time I started thinking seriously about Mm. where I should be spending more of my time. There were other components. I heard a man preach from Ezekiel 22. I sought for a man to stand in the gap before me for my people, but I found none. I remember chorus that everybody sang in those days in Sunday school. I couldn't get it out of my head. By and by when I look on his face, beautiful face, thorn-shadowed face. By and by when I look on his face, I'll wish I had given him more. And I wasn't denying that you could be right at the center of giving God everything by serving as a chemist. But for me, that wasn't working out that way. Mm. So there were a lot of different factors. There wasn't just one one imaginative moment or anything like that. Yeah, there wasn't this one crisis moment of, yeah, slowly built. And then you first started teaching at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in, I believe, 1978. And then were there for for your entire career, 40 years or so. Before I went there, I was in Vancouver for a few years. Mm. Before that, I was in England and Germany. And before that, I was pastor of a church in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of other stuff that was packed in there before I got to Trinity. Yeah, yeah. So when you first arrived at Trinity, did you expect that you would be teaching at the same place like that for that long? I hadn't planned on it, but I hadn't ruled it out. Mm. It's not as if I was saying to myself, well, that's my plan now for the next four decades. I wasn't thinking along those terms, but I wasn't saying, boy, I can hardly wait to get out of here and get back to Canada. (laughs) So I was open, but not driven. Yeah. So was it at Trinity that you first met John Woodbridge? Yes. Okay. And then in 1993, the two of you, you published this book together, Letters Along the Way with Crossway. And it's a fascinating book. So the the book is a series of fictional letters that you and, and John wrote together between a guy named Tim Journeyman and Paul Woodson. Tim being this younger Christian man who is discerning what his life is going to be all about, and Paul Woodson is an older, more mature Christian who then kind of becomes a mentor to him. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fun and enjoyable read, but it's also a little bit different in its format and style. Where did you two get the idea for that book? Well, when we got together at lunch or something like this, we were often talking about books. What authors wrote what books, for what reason, uh, important things, philosophical things, literary things, and so on. And somewhere along the line, we were talking about the contributions of C.S. Lewis. And one of us brought up the screw tape letters, uh, letters from a senior devil to a junior devil. 
the senior devil writing to the junior devil whose name was um, Wormwood. And um, we, we made various jokes about it. You think you could choose a higher tone than writing from devil to devil, and <laughs> so, that sort of thing. But we saw that it was a clever book and it was influential and done its good. And one of us said, I don't even remember which one, we, we should write a book, Letters from a Senior Saint to a Junior Saint. And the idea collector said, well, let's talk about that. So we met. And eventually we agreed to do it. And for virtually a whole year, on Tuesday mornings at 6 o'clock, we'd meet at a local restaurant for breakfast together and laid out the plan. Basically, we, besides nailing down specifics eventually, we had several lists. We had one list of things that needed to be covered in this book. Topics. Topics. We had another list of the elements of, of Tim's journey. And then to that, putting down dates so that mm. our comments could be linked with things that were going on historically at the time, things that were going on in the newspapers, in politics, in, in whatever. So we, we laid that out sequentially, covering a span of about 15 years. And um, then into that fit a st- the storyline so that Paul and Tim fit into the storyline of those years. And once we had that nailed down, then we decided which of us was going to write which letter. We were presupposing about 40 to 45 letters. That's what we presupposed to cover the relevant topics. And um, the book started when Tim was not even a Christian. But in the story, his father had just died, and his father had been a university friend with Paul Woodson. So Paul came back into Tim's life as a family friend sort of mm-hmm. thing. And then it developed through Tim's uh, conversion and ultimately his work in graduate school in Europe and eventually his call to the ministry and the things that he studied and so forth until finally his first few years of ministry. So that's how we put it together. And that took us about a year of early morning breakfasts. Mm. Every week getting together. Every week. And it, it wasn't for breakfast for an hour. We got back to Trinity by 7 o'clock in the morning. And then I was on sabbatical the next year. And John was at, at Trinity. But we agreed that whatever else we were doing that year, we would write our respective letters. And so um, I wrote in Cambridge and he wrote in, in Deerfield. Mm. And at the end of the year, um, I took them all and copy edited them so that they sounded as if they were more or less from the same guy. Yeah. And then we hadn't quite decided how to end it. I wrote a draft of a concluding chapter. John agreed, and the rest, is, is, as they say, is history. Yeah. How hard was it to land the plane, so to speak, on all the topics that you wanted to cover in the book? I'm sure there there could have been a list a mile long of issues, theological, cultural, relational, that you might have wanted to cover there. It wasn't difficult. Hmm. We could have made the book longer, but we also realized that... Um, the sort of book has got to be driven in part by the plot line. And the plot line's going to bog down if you have to keep talking about everything and it's cousin <laughs> nothing happens. And some topics we listed, but eventually we collapsed into other topics. So that initially we had more than 45 topics. We probably had closer to 80 or 90. Hmm. But then by the time that they were edited down, it, it was a manageable list. Yeah. So I know in the book, uh, it opens, like you said, with Tim Journeyman's father has just died. And that's kind of what uh, drives him to reach out to this old family friend. Right. And if my, my dates are correct, the year before 1992, your father had passed away. Is there, was there anything autobiographical about the book and how both you and John thought about this, this man's journey to maturity as a Christian? 
Uh, hard to answer. In, in one sense, flat out, no. There's nothing biographical about it. Both John and I became Christians by rather different roots. Biographical bit, if you want to call it that, is that we moved Tim around in the, in the, in the storyline. We moved him around so that he was at various places that one or the other of us knew well. Mm. He went to France for a while. John did his PhD in France. And uh, we, he went to Cambridge. And, uh, well, I, I lived in Cambridge for many years. In that sense, there's background knowledge from mm-hmm. personal experience of different parts of the world, different subcultures, different people. that We listed also people that we wanted Tim to come in contact with and his take on them and so on. So in, the, in that sense, there's biographical influence. But it's not hard biography that I'm really yeah. talking about me here. It's not one-to-one like correspondence. Uh, so as you reflect on your own life, have there been... Paul Woodson's in your life who have played that kind of a role for you? The kind of role that Paul Woodson played for Tim was major. He became clearly the dominant voice of Christian experience and reason in his life. Even if that wasn't explicitly said, reading between the lines, that's the way it felt. Mm. And I know that there are some Christians who have been blessed with a particular mentor or a close friend and so on. Whereas for better and for worse... My own experience is rather different. I've had many, many, many people who have, it's too strong a word, but mentored me in some sense, Mm. that I've looked to for advice or criticism, suggestions, whatever, that I've looked up to for their preaching or their praying or their history, their wisdom or or whatever. But it's not as if I, I would say, John Stott shaped my life definitively. Now, he certainly influenced me on several fronts, but he... He wasn't a bosom buddy. Mm. He wasn't that close a friend or anything like this, but I'm grateful for him. And I could list a hundred people like that. Yeah. That would be easier for me than to try to decide on one or two. Yeah. I'm sure that resonates with so many people. I hear regularly about the books that we're reading, the articles that we read online that can have a really huge influence on someone's life and ministry, even if you don't know the person directly one-to-one. And it does make me think of the Gospel Coalition, which is something that you had a very large hand in creating. I wonder if you could just take us back a little bit. What was the the original vision that you and Tim Keller had when you started the Gospel Coalition? How did that fit into how you were perceiving the evangelical church to be in America and what you were wanting to help address? Well, Tim and I worked together on a project or two before we actually met. He was in New York, of course, and was purposely not traveling very much. His concentration was on Redeemer. His local church. His local church. And I was teaching at Trinity and bound up with Trinity. But I had this plan to edit a book called um, Worship by the Book. Eventually it came to be called. And um, it was written by a Presbyterian, Tim Keller, an Anglican from London that I that I knew, uh, a pastor of a free-type church. Mm. It was Wheaton College Church. And, um, Interesting. We, we, so Kent Hughes. Yeah. And me from a, a Baptist background. And um, what what we tried to do was to agree on a basic biblical theology that I wrote, and then to ask, how does that work out in your life as minister of such and such a church, mm. s- so that the theology is driving your choices and your music and your priorities, your structures, and so on, so on, so on. So each pastor was sort of providing the unique perspective on how that Correct. works itself out in their own context. Correct. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that that actually came out before before Tim and I met. We met in Cambridge, I think, 
in 2002. So the end of the previous decade, we'd been working on the book, and the book came out about 2002, give mm-hmm. or take a, a few months. Yeah. And in any case, when we met, some people you meet and you click, and we clicked. Mm. Uh, we were both talkers. We were both interested in cultural things. We were both in the Reformed heritage. We were both committed to expository preaching. We we, we had so many things mm. going in, in common. Did the Baptistic and the Presbyterian difference there, did that, that was never really no, an issue for you two? Not in the slightest. Mm. Enough to make jokes back and forth. That was about <laughs> it. And then 2000, about three, uh, I had to do something in Princeton. Nothing to do with these projects. And um, Tim suggested I take the fast train from Princeton into New York and we'll have lunch together. So that's what we did. My wife was with me. She came in and she went off with a couple of ladies from his church to do the town. And Tim and I and two or three of his offsiders met at a sidewalk cafe. In downtown New York City? In d- downtown Manhattan. Wow. And uh, afterwards, we went back to his office, but that was it. Was just a few hours, mm. and uh, and then we t- I took the train with my wife back to 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 Princeton. But during that time, one of the things that we talked about was whether or not, in our perception of the needs of evangelicalism and its failures, and the increasing fuzziness about its definition, and the, the different parties and mm. uh, tribes that were erupting, and so on, was there a place for starting a new organization that tried to address these things? Mm. And uh, we all knew, of course, that the most recent attempt, which was ACE, the Alliance for Confessing Evangelicals, was, in in all respect, having a rough go of it. We Mm. needn't go over the reasons for it, but they they did some things that, in retrospect, were probably not entirely wise. But it showed that there was a need, an interest, what should be done about it. So we thought we should probably try to do something, but to avoid things that we perceive to be mistakes in the ACE experiment. Mm. And um, so th- there's a lot of interplay back and forth there that we needn't to go into. But I drafted a letter that uh, Tim approved, and we sent it to about 40 pastors. Now, neither he nor I knew all the names on that list. Between us, we knew a lot of them. But we also approached people whom we respected and said, if you were starting an organization like this, what names would you add? Mm. So you kind of crowdsourced the initial list. So we crowdsourced list. Yeah. the initial list. And we wrote 40 people and invited them to come to Trinity for a close to three-day conference where we would spend most of our time in talking together and praying and asking ourselves, is the Lord calling us to do something? Mm. In other words, we did not lay out a whole plan or program. Yeah, many of us think of the Gospel Coalition today, and it's a website with many different contributors, and it's a conference, yeah. And yeah. but it sounds like it, it started, started very differently. Yeah, and um, we, we asked 40 people to come. The first distinctive mark of God's grace on this project was that all 40 came. Everyone you asked. Everyone agreed. we asked came. Wow. And we told them, you're coming for close to three days. You're paying your own shot, your own airfare your own hotel bill, <laughs> Trinity will throw in the meals and the facilities and so on. And what was the stated purpose of the meeting? The stated purpose of the meeting was to explore together whether this is something which we collectively should address in terms of the needs of the church, uh, the call of the gospel to address uh, our divisions, mm-hmm. our differences, and so on, so on, so on. Yeah. So then you guys started meeting yearly after that? Yearly. This kind of same group of pastors? All we achieved the first year. We spent at least a third of our time 
listening to one another's stories, where we're from, what ministries we were in, and then gradually personal things and so on, and then stopping to pray and talk and pray and talk mm. and pray. That was 90% of that th- those first three days. Mm. And then we just threw the ball out there saying, what should we consider doing? Or should we consider not doing anything? Mm. Is this is this just empire building? Is this is this going to be another failure? Yeah. What if we should be doing something? What should we be doing? Yeah. What would that look like? And um, it immediately became clear that quite a few of the brothers would be happy to try something, but th- they didn't want to form an organization unless there was doctrinal another agreement. So we agreed that I would write one of two documents, Tim the other one, for discussion the next year. I would write the Statement of Faith, which would be, in the Reformed heritage, contemporary, but not clearly Baptist or Pado-Baptist. And Tim would write what we called Theological Vision of Ministry, because, as uh, somebody pointed out, you can sign the Westminster Confession of Faith and come out sounding like Banner of Truth, or sign the Westminster Statement of Faith and come out with guitars and in, in other words, there's a vision of ministry that's yeah. an issue rather than just a statement of faith. Right. And um, so we spent a, two or three years then meeting together to work through these documents line by line, line by line, line by line, line by And at various points, I was not sure the thing was going to hold together. Mm. But it did. And we agreed then to strike a committee to find a name for the organization and begin with a conference or two just to see what would happen. So our first conference, we... We held in the Trinity Chapel uh, in 2007. Those days you could crowd 650 and there was packed out. Mm, right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, packed out. And the average age was well under 40. Was that encouraging to you to see very, those young people very. coming to here? Yeah. And what they kept talking about was how, I don't know, six or seven plenaries and some workshops and so on. But uh, these pastors on a council were well-known people. They could be plenary speakers at a major conference, and they were just serving in a workshop. And clearly, they loved each other and cared for each other. The, the dynamic was superb, and it was it was genuinely of God. And that spoke volumes. We made two or three very quick decisions. We agreed on a name, the Gospel Coalition. The discussions around that are interesting, but that's another detail. And um, we agreed that we would try to go digital. Because this is around 2006, 2007. Yep. I mean, that's like, I think the iPhone came out 2007. So that was yep. pretty, it was pretty, a lot of foresight. Correct. There. And, and the churches that were involved put together enough money so we could hire one person. So then the conference started, the, the, because we decided to go digital, it meant we needed a web page and eventually a webmaster and everything grew from that. So we now produce all kinds of paper material and books and this sort of thing. But our reach, what we're known for in 16 or 18 languages around the world, including Farsi and Arabic and Hindi now and so on, besides French and German and It's amazing. It, it's, its reach is considerable. Yeah. And um, so we have a lot to be, to be thankful for. We've, we made some mistakes over the years, but, but the Lord preserved us and um, eventually we, we, we created a council that was genuinely godly. When we meet together, still as a council, the council has turned over somewhat. Some people have moved on or retired or gone to glory or whatever. People will tell you, Tim will still tell you, that the favorite meeting he has every year is the Council of the Coalition. Mm. Uh, we've worked very hard at, at having discussions that are sealed. We don't talk about what we talk about. 
And that just preserves the ability for everyone to speak freely. To and, speak freely. Yeah. And to learn to trust one another. Mm. Early on, 2005-ish or 6-ish, I can't remember, one, I was, we were around this big square table and Tim was on one corner and I was adjacent to, adjacent to him around the corner. And um, he suddenly chuckled under his breath as he does and turned his laptop so I could read what was on his screen. <laughs> and it turned out that about 15 minutes earlier, he had said something which somebody in the group thought was a bit surprising coming from Tim. I won't even mention what it was, but <laughs> it, it was one of those things. You know? So that other chap had emailed a couple of his offsiders back at his home church. Do you oh know my. what Tim Keller said? Oh, my. That person put it on their website saying, Tim Keller said such and such, <laughs> such. And then one of Tim Keller's offsiders read it on their site and wrote back to Tim and said, did you really say that? All in 15 minutes. All in 15 minutes. <laughs> so the goal is to avoid that from yeah. happening every time. And Tim thought it was funny. Somebody else could have been really upset. And uh-huh. Tim Tim laughed. Yeah. But then we made it very clear after that that, that uh, anything we say in this room amongst ourselves mm. is only for this room. So as a, if I'm if I'm hearing you right it seems like one of the main goals with the Gospel Coalition initially was to help to address some of the perceived weaknesses of evangelicalism and reinforce the church with sound doctrine and a and an emphasis on the gospel. And yet as you look at the landscape of evangelicalism today, it, you know, it's pretty well it's well established that we see a lot of fracturing, we see a lot of division in the church division that maybe wasn't even there back in the early 2000s. Do, does that discourage you? Do you feel like that we have gone in the wrong direction as evangelicals? I think it's complicated. Hmm. When you say we, as evangelicals, have gone in the wrong direction, to whom do you refer? Hmm. That's a good question. Because there are, in my view, millions of people who call themselves evangelicals who doctrinally aren't. Part of the issue is that the sphere for defining evangelical varies from group to group. Yeah. Some have a sociological background. And so to define evangelicals, you look at all the groups that call themselves evangelical and do a sociological analysis and find out what they believe and whether they handle snakes or not and what they do with their hair and what denominations they fill and where they live and so on. Yeah. But it's all sociological, regardless of whether they're believers or not, whether they're liberal or not, whether they're whatever it is. Others try to define the term Historically, what what groups do they come from? What, what who was the first evangelical? Yeah, uh, and so on. There are half a dozen of those so, today. Some of it's political. You say you're an evangelical. Oh, you're for Trump, eh? Yeah. And you can't be an evangelical unless you're for Trump for certain groups. Is that is Whereas, that is that a dynamic that affects every label, or does it feel like evangelical is particularly slippery these days? Well, slippery labels are are part of culture, part of tribal struggles, and so on. But it's particularly dangerous in this case because there is an offense around truth. I mean, I remember having long conversations with Carl Henry, who had gone before we started the organization, of course, uh, still wrestling in his mind with whether the evangelical was still a useful term. Oh, Carl Henry was. Carl Henry. Wow. So that's 80s. So there's been a lot of, this has been an issue for a long time. Huge, huge. Mm, It's so easy for us, especially young people like myself, to yeah. be uh, ignorant of some of those yeah. earlier conversations that have been going on. Well, I started writing a book just called Evangelicalism, mm. where I try to handle all of this. But in my view, the, um, the, the only way you can provide a useful 
matrix in which you discuss evangelicalism or evangelical is theological. In other words, it's not a term I'm eager to give up because the Bible uses it. Mm. Evangelical comes from evangel, which is simply one root of gospel. Gospel and evangel mean exactly the same thing. Good news, great news, Mm. powerful news. And so I don't care if we lose the term fundamentalist because it's not in the Scripture. I'd care if we lose the term evangelical because it is in the Scripture. So it's worth holding on to. But that means you've got to defend the corner. So this is a scriptural word. What does it mean? But at least then you have a biblical text to study together what it means. Mm. And there's place for taking into consideration our backgrounds, our cultural analyses, our historical backgrounds, and so on, so on, so on. But in one sense, the first evangelical after the resurrection of Christ is the early church people because they hold to the evangel. Yeah. So as you as you look at the future of the American church, the evangelical church in America, keeping in mind that there are there's so much variety there and there are different threats facing different quarters. Are there any big struggles, though, that you perceive that you think Christians would would do well to be prepared for and think carefully about? Well, first of all, I would distinguish between areas of struggle that are ubiquitous. Uh, They come back again and again and again. In every generation. If not every generation, in a lot of generations. Mm. There will always be struggles on the authority of Scripture, this side of of the Enlightenment. So I've spent a fair bit of my life tackling one or the other of those things. Three years ago, I edited The Enduring Authority of the Christian Scriptures. It's a very fat book, and my colleagues wrote some marvelous papers the one by Henri Blochet, for example, on human and divine authorship is superb. So these things continue and, and will have to be addressed again and again. It's not, not enough just to look back at what's already been said. You think Correct. every generation will need to sort of Has to restate fight it again. that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And um, the, the sort of new perspective on Paul that uh, governed an awful lot of debate uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there's still some of it around, but it's now old hat. But on the other hand, what it did do, the benefit of it, there, there was lots of disadvantage to it, but the benefit of it is that it got an awful, lot, an awful lot of evangelicals doing a lot of very good work on the nature of justification. Yeah. So it's sometimes a, a blessing from God to force the church into facing an issue that has been faced in the past, but we've forgotten about it, mm. and we need to think it through again. And um, so there's... The, the, the doctrine of assurance, for example, comes back again and again in, in different formats, different problems, different structures. Um, the, the, the holiness movement, the role of the Holy Spirit, uh, the, these things come again. What, what's reformed theology? Reformed theolo- Reformed is a, is, is a word that has a huge semantic swing to it nowadays. <laughs> a, a lot of reformed people so-called today are miles from where Calvin was. Mm. But others not only start with Calvin, but, but move farther to the right uh, after that. So, so, so to to think these things through clearly has to be done in every generation. It's why you need pastor theology people. It's, it's why you need seminaries or st- structural organizations that are hel- hel- giving people a context in which to work these things out. But although most of the problems that are faced spiritually get passed on to another generation. That's really what Letters is all about. Nevertheless, there are some things that have developed since then that are distinctive. Nobody was talking about wokeness when we did our book. We probably didn't say enough about uh, race. Uh, Today, more would have to be said. 
the residue of the postmodern debate. Is we said some things in in our letters along the way, but thirty years ago, when, when students talked about postmodernism at university, thirty forty years ago, if you were studying in any of the arts courses, English, social science, poetry, uh, history, and so on, you had to wrestle with the leaders, the intellectual leaders of of the postmodern movement. People read uh, Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault and. And, and and others. Today, as far as I can see at university, very few people are reading these people anymore. But that doesn't mean that they've abandoned the postmodern epistemology that has erupted. Mm. They've bought into it now as part of the current culture. It's part of the yeah. Weltanschauung. It's part of the worldview. It, yeah. it's, it's part of the given. It, it's what Charles Taylor points out. 500 years ago, the default position was that there is a God to answer to, mm. a God who is there. Nowadays, the default position is there really isn't a God. And it's because there have been huge shifts in epistemology. So things do change. Oh, they do change. Mm. And how to address those changes is important. But, but you don't want to address them as if, as if we're the first person to have invented this particular sin. Yeah. It's, it's complicated. The, the, the forms in, in which these things shake out are going to be shaped by cultural siren calls. So you're a well-known, influential person in our circles. Many people know you. Many people have read one of your, I believe, nearly 200 books that you've written or edited. How do you stay humble? I have so much to be humble about. It's not that difficult. (laughs) Um, The older you get, the more things you remember of which you're ashamed. Of course you're going to be humble if you stay anywhere near the cross. I remember, oh, early 80s. We organized something at Trinity in which we invited Carla F. H. Henry and Kenneth Conser to come and give each one of them a lecture on the current state of evangelicalism in North America with a further session with Q&A. They, they were superb. They, they knew their stuff. They were careful. They didn't stick a foot wrong. They weren't scoring points, but they were being frank and, mm. and so on. And the students loved it. They just lapped it up. I was tasked with asking them questions the next day. And I didn't tell them in advance what the questions were. I asked them a lot of obvious things. I asked them what, what they thought of the Southern Baptist Convention, which was at the time going through the throes of revolution. Mm. So I asked them about books and people and movements and what they saw happening and, and so on. And then finally, right toward the end, I said, a lot of Christian scholars and senior pastors and so on, in their old age, become grumpy. They become cranky. How old were you at the time? Oh, I was about 35. Okay. But these guys were both in their 80s. Carl was older than Kenneth, but they were both in their 80s. And um, I said, um, all of us can think of certain elderly saints who, who built quite a lot in their youth and then in their old age became defensive and uh, jealous and maybe a bit mm. envious of young men coming along behind and so on and began actually to destroy what they built. But both of you men have avoided that trap. Both of you, from my perspective, walk humbly. Your models to listen to. You're, you're not arrogant. How have you avoided the traps? So basically, I was asking them what you just asked me. And both of them fumbled a bit, didn't know what to say, looked embarrassed, and so on. <laughs> and then finally, Carl said, very quietly, how can anybody be arrogant if he stands beside the cross? It was the best 30 seconds of the entire three-hour project so a number of years ago, you published a book with Crossway called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And, and that book, I think, similarly stands as a testament to the humility of a Christian who walked closely with his God. It's a, it's a book about your father, and you conclude the book with this 
beautiful paragraph uh, talking about his life and ministry, reflecting on the impact of his life and ministry. I wonder if you could read that for us briefly, and then I'll then ask a question about it. Tom Carson never wrote a book, but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. His journals have many, many entries bathed in tears of contrition, but his children and grandchildren remember his laughter. He much preferred to avoid controversy than to stir things up, but his own commitments to historic confessionalism were unyielding, and in ethics he was a man of principle. His own ecclesiastical circles were rather small and narrow, but his reading was correspondingly large and expansive. He was not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer lists. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on television, no mention in Parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on, but on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Your life has been very different from your father's. Uh, he was not well known outside of his own church. And you helped to start a global ministry and are known around the world. And yet, you would say his life has had a huge impact on how you think about what it is you've been called to do. If you had to summarize that, how did his life impact you? That's probably a question that's better answered by a good historian 200 years from now. Hmm. Uh, I'm too close to the events to uh, be a good judge. When the saints go marching in, it's for God to say the well-dones and decide who gets what. But just as I'm convinced that the widow with her two mites will be a lot closer to the front of the pack than some great Christian benefactors who have given away millions. So I'm pretty sure that pastors like my dad uh, are likely to be a little closer to the front of the pack than uh, people who speak to 10,000 people that are shot. Hmm. Well, Don, thank you so much for taking the time today to share a little bit about your own life, your own story, the insight that God has given you into the church and what the next generation can learn from you and others. We appreciate it. Blessings on you. That was D.A. Carson reflecting on his life and ministry. For more, be sure to check out the book he co-wrote with John Woodbridge from Crossway, Letters Along the Way, From a Senior Saint to a Junior Saint. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off, or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a review and sharing the episode with a friend? That really helps. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry. 
that exist solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.